Chapter Thirty One, Part One of Two Years Before the Mast. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Two Years Before the Mast by Richard Henry Dana, Jr. Chapter Thirty One Bad Prospects. There began now to be a decided change in the appearance of things. The days became shorter and shorter, the sun running lower in its course each day, and giving less and less heat, and the nights so cold as to prevent our sleeping on deck. The Magellan clouds in sight of a clear, moonless night, the skies looking cold and angry, and, at times, a long, heavy, ugly sea, setting in from the southern told us what we were coming to. Still, however, we had a fine strong breeze, and kept on our way under as much sail as our ship would bear. Toward the middle of the week the wind hauled to the southward, which brought us upon a taut bowline, made the ship meet, nearly head-on, the heavy swell which rolled from that quarter, and there was something not at all encouraging in the manner in which she met it. Being still so deep and heavy, she wanted the buoyancy which should have carried her over the seas, and she dropped heavily into them, the water washing over the decks, and every now and then, when an unusually large sea met her fairly upon the bows, she struck it with a sound as dead and heavy as that with which a sledgehammer falls upon the pile, and took the whole of it upon the forecastle, and, rising, carried it aft in the scuppers, washing the rigging off the pins, and carrying along with it everything which was loose on deck. She had been acting this way all of our forenoon watch below, as we could tell by the washing of the water over our heads, and the heavy breaking of the seas against her bows, only the thickness of a plank from our heads, as we lay in our berths, which were directly against the bows. At eight bells the watch was called, and we came on deck, one hand going aft to take the wheel, and another going to the galley to get the grub for dinner. I stood on the forecastle, looking at the seas, which were rolling high as far as the eye could reach, their tops white with foam, and the body of them a deep indigo blue, reflecting the bright rays of the sun. Our ship rose slowly over a few of the largest of them, until one immense fellow came rolling on, threatening to cover her, and which I was sailor enough to know by the feeling of her under my feet, she would not rise over. I sprang upon the night-heads, and, seizing hold of the forestay, drew myself up upon it. My feet were just off the stanchion, when the bow struck fairly into the middle of the sea, and it washed the ship fore and aft, burying her in the water. As soon as she rose out of it, I looked aft, and everything fore to the mainmast, except the long-boat, which was griped and double-lashed down to the ring-bolts, was swept off clear. The galley, the pigsty, the hen-coop, and a large sheep-pen which had been built upon the forehatch were all gone in the twinkling of an eye, leaving the deck as clean as a chin new-reaped, and not a stick left to show where anything had stood. In the scuppers lay the galley, bottom-up, and a few boards floating about, the wreck of the sheep-pen and half a dozen miserable sheep floating among them, wet through, and not a little frightened at the sudden change that had come upon them. As soon as the sea had washed by, all hands sprang up out of the forecastle to see what had become of the ship, 
and in a few moments the cook and old Bill crawled out from under the galley, where they had been lying in the water, nearly smothered, with the galley over them. Fortunately, it rested against the bulwarks, or it would have broken some of their bones. When the water ran off, we picked the sheep up and put them in the longboat, got the galley back in its place, and set things a little to rights. But, had not our ship had uncommonly high bulwarks and rail, everything must have been washed overboard, not excepting old Bill and the cook. Bill had been standing at the galley door, with the kid of beef in his hand for the forecastle mess, when away he went, kid, beef, and all. He held on to the kid to the last, like a good fellow, but the beef was gone, and when the water had run off we saw it lying, high and dry, like a rock at low tide. Nothing could hurt that. We took the loss of our beef very easily, consoling ourselves with the recollection that the cabin had more to lose than we, and chuckled not a little at seeing the remains of the chicken pie and pancakes floating in the scuppers. "'This will never do,' was what some said, and every one felt. Here we were, not within a thousand miles of the latitude of Cape Horn, and our decks swept by a sea, not one half so high as we must expect to find there. Some blamed the captain for loading his ship so deep when he knew what he must expect, while others said that the wind was always southwest off the Cape in the winter, and that, running before it, we should not mind the seas so much. When we got down to the forecastle, old Bill, who was somewhat of a croaker, having met with a great many accidents at sea, said that, if that was the way she was going to act, we might as well make our wills and balance the books at once and put on a clean shirt. Vast there, you bloody old owl. You're always hanging out blue lights. You're frightened by the ducking you got in the scuppers and can't take a joke. What's the use of being always on the lookout for Davy Jones? Stand by, says another. And we'll get an afternoon watch below by this scrape. But in this they were disappointed, for at two bells all hands were called and set to work getting lashings upon everything on deck, and the captain talked of sending down the top-gallant masts. But as the sea went down toward night, and the wind hauled a beam, we left them standing, and set the studding sails. The next day all hands were turned to upon unbending the old sails and getting up the new ones, for a ship, unlike people on shore, puts on her best suit in bad weather. The old sails were sent down, and three new topsails, and new fore and main courses, jib, and fore-topmast staysail, which were made on the coast and had never been used, were bent, with a complete set of new earrings, robants, and reef points, and reef tackles were rove to the courses, and spilling lines to the topsails. These, with new braces and clue-lines fore and aft, gave us a good suit of running rigging. The wind continued westerly, and the weather and sea less rough since the day on which we shipped the heavy sea, and we were making great progress under steading soles, with our light sails all set, keeping a little to the eastward of south. For the captain, depending upon westerly winds off the Cape, had kept so far to the westward that, though we were within about five hundred miles of the latitude of Cape Horn, we were nearly seventeen hundred miles to the westward of it. Through the rest of the week we continued on with a fair wind, gradually, as we got more to the southward, keeping a more easterly course, and bringing the wind on our larboard quarter, until, 
Sunday, June 26, when, having a fine clear day, the captain got a lunar observation as well as his meridian altitude, which made us in latitude 47 degrees 50 minutes south, longitude 113 degrees 49 minutes west. Cape Horn bearing, according to my calculations, east-south-east, one-half east, and distant 1,800 miles. Monday, June 27th. During the first part of this day, the wind continued fair, and as we were going before it, it did not feel very cold, so that we kept at work on deck in our common clothes and round jackets. Our watch had an afternoon watch below for the first time since leaving San Diego, and having inquired of the third mate what the latitude was at noon, and made our usual guesses as to the time she would need to be up with the horn, we turned in for a nap. We were sleeping away, at the rate of knots, when three knocks on the scuttle and, All hands ahoy! started us from our berths. What could be the matter? It did not appear to be blowing hard, and looking up through the scuttle, we could see that it was clear day overhead, yet the watch were taking in sail. We thought there must be a sail in sight, and that we were about to heave to and speak to her, and were just congratulating ourselves upon it, for we had seen neither sail nor land since we left port, when we heard the mate's voice on deck. He turned in all standing, and was always on deck the moment he was called, singing out to the men who were taking in the setting souls, and asking where his watch were. We did not wait for a second call, but tumbled up the ladder, and there, on the starboard bow, was a bank of mist, covering sea and sky, and driving directly for us. I had seen the same before in my passage round in the Pilgrim, and knew what it meant, and there was no time to be lost. We had nothing on but thin clothes, yet there was not a moment to spare, and at it we went. The boys of the other watch were in the tops, taking in the top-gallant studding-souls, and the lower and topmost studding-souls were coming down by the run. It was nothing but haul down and clue up, until we got all the studding-souls in, and the royals, flying jib, and mizzen top-gallant sails furled, and the ship kept off a little to take the squall. The fore and main top-gallant sails were still on her, for the old man did not mean to be frightened in broad daylight, and was determined to carry sail till the last minute. We all stood waiting for its coming, when the first blast showed us that it was not to be trifled with. Rain, sleet, snow, and wind enough to take our breath from us, and make the toughest turn us back to windward. The ship lay nearly over upon her beam-ends, the spars and rigging snapped and cracked, and her top-gallant masts bent like whip-sticks. "'Clue up the fore and main top-gallant sails!' shouted the captain, and all hands sprang into the clue-lines. The decks were standing nearly at an angle of forty-five degrees, and the ship going like a mad steed through the water, the whole forward part of her in a smother of foam." The halyards were let go, and the yard clued down, and the sheet started, and in a few minutes the sails smothered and kept in by clue-lines and bunt-lines. "'Furlum, sir?' asked the mate. "'Let go the topsail halyards, fore and aft!' shouted the captain in answer, 
at the top of his voice. Down came the topsail yards, the reef tackles were manned and hauled out, and we climbed up to windward, and sprang into the weather rigging. The violence of the wind, and the hail and sleet, driving nearly horizontally across the ocean, seemed actually to pin us down to the rigging. It was hard work making head against them. One after another we got out upon the yards, and here we had work to do, for our new sails had hardly been bent long enough to get the stiffness out of them, and the new earrings and reef points, stiffened with the sleet, knotted like pieces of iron wire. Having only our round jackets and straw hats on, we were soon wet through, and it was every moment growing colder. Our hands were soon numbed, which, added to the stiffness of everything else, kept us a good while on the yard. After we had got the sail hauled upon the yard, we had to wait a long time for the weather earring to be passed, but there was no fault to be found, for French John was at the earring, and a better sailor never laid out a yard. So we leaned over the yard and beat our hands upon the sail to keep them from freezing. At length the word came, All out to Lord! And we seized the reef points and hauled the band taut for the lee earring. Taut band, not away! And we got the first reef fast and were just going to lay down when, Two reefs! Two reefs! shouted the mate. And we had a second reef to take in the same way. When this was fast, we went down on deck, manned the halyards to leeward, nearly up to our knees in water, set the topsail, and then laid aloft on the main topsail yard, and reefed that sail in the same manner, for, as I have before stated, we were a good deal reduced in numbers, and, to make it worse, the carpenter, only two days before, had cut his leg with an axe, so that he could not go aloft. This weakened us so that we could not well manage more than one topsail at a time in such weather as this, and, of course, each man's labor was doubled. When the main topsail yard, we went upon the main yard and took a reef in the mainsail. No sooner had we got on deck than, Lay aloft there and close reef mizzen topsail! This called me, and being nearest to the rigging, I got first aloft and out to the weather earing. English Ben was up just after me, and took the lee earing, and the rest of our gang were soon on the yard, and began to fist the cell, when the mate considerately sent up the cook and steward to help us. I could now account for the long time it took to pass the other earings, for, to do my best, with a strong hand to help me at the dog's ear, I could not get it passed until I heard them beginning to complain in the bunt. One reef after another we took in, until the sail was close reefed, when we went down and hoisted away at the halyards. In the meantime the jib had been furled and the staysail set, and the ship under her still hanging in the buttons, and sliding and jerking as though they would like to take the masts out of her. We gave a look aloft and knew that our work was not done yet, and, sure enough, no sooner did the mate see that we were on deck than, Lay aloft there, four of you, and furl the top-gallant sails! This called me again, and two of us went aloft up the fore rigging, and two more up the main, upon the top-gallant yards. The shrouds were now iced over, the sleet having formed a crust round all the standing rigging, and on the weather side of the masts and yards. 
When we got upon the yard, my hands were so numb that I could not have cast off the knots at the gasket if it were to save my life. We both lay over the yard for a few seconds, beating our hands upon the cell, until we started the blood into our fingers' ends, and at the next moment our hands were in a burning heat. My companion on the yard was a lad, the boy George Somerby, who came out in the ship a weak, puny boy from one of the Boston schools, no larger than a spritsail sheet knot, nor heavier than a paper of lamp-black, and not strong enough to haul a shad off a gridiron, but who was now as long as a spare topmast, strong enough to knock down an ox, and hardy enough to eat him. We fisted the sail together, and after six or eight minutes of hard hauling and pulling and beating down the sail, which was about as stiff as a sheet-iron, we managed to get it furled and snugly furled it must be, for we knew the mate well enough to be certain that if it got adrift again, we should be called up from our watch below at any hour of the night to furl it. I had been on lookout for a chance to jump below and clap on a thick jacket and sou'wester, but when we got on deck we found that eight bells had been struck, and the other watch gone below, so that there were two hours of dog-watch for us and a plenty of work to do. It had now set in for a steady gale from the southwest, but we were not yet far enough to the southward to make a fair wind of it, for we must give Terra del Fuego a wide berth. The decks were covered with snow, and there was a constant driving of sleet. In fact, Cape Horn had set in with good earnest. In the midst of all this, and before it became dark, we had all the studding sails to make up and stow away, and then to lay aloft and rig in all the booms, fore and aft, and coil away the tacks, sheets, and halyards. This was pretty tough work for four or five hands, in the face of a gale which almost took us off the yards, and with ropes so stiff with ice that it was almost impossible to bend them. I was nearly half an hour out on the end of the foreyard, trying to coil away and stop down the topmost studding sole tack and lower halyards. It was after dark when we got through, and we were not a little pleased to hear four bells struck, which sent us below for two hours and gave us each a pot of hot tea with our cold beef and bread, and, what was better yet, a suit of thick, dry clothing, fitted for the weather, in place of our thin clothes, which were wet through and now frozen stiff. This sudden turn, for which we were so little prepared, was as unacceptable to me as to any of the rest, for I had been troubling for several days with a slight toothache, and this cold weather and wetting and freezing were not the best things in the world for it. I soon found that it was getting strong hold and running over all parts of my face, and before the watch was out I went aft to the mate, who had charge of the medicine-chest to get something for it. But the chest showed like the end of a long voyage, for there was nothing that would answer but a few drops of laudanum, which must be saved for an emergency, so I had only to bear the pain as well as I could. When we went on deck at eight bells, it had stopped snowing, and there were a few stars out, but the clouds were still black, and it was blowing a steady gale. Just before midnight I went aloft and sent down the mizzen royal yard, 
and had the good luck to do it to the satisfaction of the mate, who said it was done out of hand and ship shape. The next four hours below were but little relief to me, for I lay awake in my berth the whole time from the pain in my face, and heard every bell strike, and at four o'clock turned out with a watch, feeling little spirit for the hard duties of the day. Bad weather and hard work at sea can be borne up against very well if one only has spirit and health, but there is nothing brings a man down at such a time like bodily pain and want of sleep. There was, however, too much to do to allow time to think, for the gale of yesterday and the heavy seas we met with a few days before, while we had yet ten degrees more southing to make, had convinced the captain that we had something before us which was not to be trifled with, and orders were given to send down the long top-gallant masts. The top-gallant and royal yards were accordingly struck, the flying jib-boom rigged in, and the top-gallant masts sent down on deck, and all lashed together by the side of the long-boat. The rigging was then sent down, and coiled away below, and everything made snug aloft. There was not a sailor in the ship who was not rejoiced to see these sticks come down, for, so long as the yards were aloft, on the least sign of a lull, the top-gallant sails were loosed, and then we had to furl them again in a snow-squall, and shin up and down single ropes caked with ice, and send royal yards down in the teeth of a gale coming right from the south pole. It was an interesting sight, too, to see our noble ship dismantled of all her top-hammer of long tapering masts and yards, and boom pointed with spearhead, which ornamented her in port, and all that canvas, which a few days before had covered her like a cloud, from the truck to the water's edge, spreading far out beyond her hull on either side, now gone, and she stripped like a wrestler for the fight. It corresponded, too, with the desolate character of her situation. Alone, as she was, battling with storms, wind, and ice, at this extremity of the globe, in an almost constant night. Friday, June 1st. We were now nearly up to the latitude of Cape Horn, and having over forty degrees of easting to make, we squared away the yards before a strong westerly gale, shook a reef out of our foretopsail, and stood on our way, east by south, and with the prospect of being up with the Cape in a week or ten days. As for myself, I had no sleep for forty-eight hours, and the want of rest, together with constant wet and cold, had increased the swelling, so that my face was nearly as large as two, and I found it impossible to get my mouth open wide enough to eat. In this state, the steward applied to the captain for some rice to boil for me, but he only got a no, damn you! Tell him to eat salt junk and hard bread like the rest of them. This was, in truth, what I had expected. However, I did not starve, for Mr. Brown, who was a man as well as a sailor, and had always been a good friend to me, smuggled a pan of rice into the galley, and told the cook to boil it for me, and not let the old man see it. Had it been fine weather, or in port, I should have gone below and lain by until my face got well, but in such weather as this, and short-handed as we were, it was not for me to desert my post, 
so I kept on deck, and stood my watch and did my duty as well as I could. Saturday, July 2nd. This day the sun rose fair, but it ran too low in the heavens to give any heat, or thaw out our sails and rigging, yet the sight of it was pleasant, and we had a steady reef-top breeze from the westward. The atmosphere, which had previously been clear and cold, for the last few hours grew damp, and had a disagreeable wet chilliness in it, and the man who came from the wheel said he heard the captain tell, the passenger, that the thermometer had fallen several degrees since morning, which he could not account for in any other way than by supposing that there must be ice near us, though such a thing was rarely heard of in this latitude at this season of the year. At twelve o'clock we were sent below, and had just got through dinner, when the cook put his head down the scuttle and told us to come on deck and see the finest sight that we had ever seen. "'Where away, doctor?' Note. The cook's title in all vessels. End note. Asked the first man who was up. "'On the larboard bow!' And there lay, floating in the ocean several miles off, an immense irregular mass, its top and points covered with snow, and its center of a deep indigo color. This was an iceberg, and of the largest size, as one of our men said who had been in the northern ocean. As far as the eye could reach, the sea in every direction was of a deep blue color. The waves running high and fresh and sparkling in the light, and in the midst lay this immense mountain island, its cavities and valleys thrown into deep shade, and its points and pinnacles glittering in the sun. All hands were soon on deck, looking at it, and admiring in various ways its beauty and grandeur. But no description can give any idea of the strangeness, splendor, and really the sublimity of the sight. Its great size, for it must have been from two to three miles in circumference, and several hundred feet in height, its slow motion, as its base rose and sank in the water, and its high points knotted against the clouds, the dashing of the waves upon it, which, breaking high with foam, lined its base with a white crest, and the thundering sound of the cracking of the mass, and the breaking and tumbling down of huge pieces, together with its nearness and approach, which added a slight element of fear, all combined to give it the character of true sublimity. The main body of the mass was, as I have said, of an indigo color, its base crusted with frozen foam, and as it grew thin and transparent toward the edges and top, its color shaded off from a deep blue to the whiteness of snow. It seemed to be drifting slowly toward the north, so that we kept away and avoided it. It was in sight all afternoon, and when we got to leeward of it, the wind died away, so that we lay too quite near it for a greater part of the night. Unfortunately, there was no moon, but it was a clear night, and we could plainly mark the long, regular heaving of the stupendous mass, as its edges moved slowly against the stars, now revealing them, and now shutting them in. Several times in our watch long cracks were heard, 
which sounded as though they must have run through the whole length of the iceberg, and several pieces fell down with a thundering crash, plunging heavily into the sea. Toward morning a strong breeze sprang up, and we filled away and left it astern, and at daylight it was out of sight. The next day, which was Sunday, July 3rd, the breeze continued strong, the air exceedingly chilly, and the thermometer low. In the course of the day we saw several icebergs of different sizes, but none so near as the one which we saw the day before. Some of them, as well as we could judge, at the distance at which we were, must have been as large as that, if not larger. At noon we were in latitude 55 degrees 12 minutes south, and supposed longitude 89 degrees 5 minutes west. Toward night the wind hauled to the southward and headed us off our course a little, and blew a tremendous gale. But this we did not mind, as there was no rain nor snow, and we were already under close sail. End of chapter 31, part 1